0: The book of Revelation is an interesting study, but when we look at the details of the book of Revelation, we need to do just like we do any other piece of scripture, and that is we need to not get caught up in certain details that we were never meant to be caught up in and miss the overall message of a passage. Sometimes, especially in the book of Revelation, we get caught up in what does this represent or what does these represent? And we're going to have one of those come up tonight in this passage about the morning star. It's going to be very difficult for me to come down dogmatically on just what the morning star meant. But you see, if the text doesn't give us that much information about what the morning star meant, maybe that's not the central point of the passage. The passage will give us enough information to understand what the central point of Jesus' message was here. And to this church, the central point of this passage is the church of Thyatira is compromised with intolerance of that which god condemns will bring severe discipline on the believer that's the message to the church at thyatira compromise with and tolerance of that which god condemns will bring severe discipline to the believer and to the angel of the church at thyatira right this is chapter 2 verse 18 and to the angel of the church at thyatira right the son of god who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching... Who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Verse 26, And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule over them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as also I have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira Right. William Barclay observed, It's an odd fact that the longest of the letters to the seven churches was written to the church in the smallest and least important of the seven towns. The Roman writer and natural philosopher Pliny the Elder refers to Thyatira with this dismissive phrase, Thyatira, and other unimportant communities. I mention this not to dismiss the city and its letter, but to explain why there's a bit of a greater difficulty in recreating the historical setting of this church than of the other churches. It's just not as well-known of a city. But at the same time, in God's eyes, there are no little people and there are no little places all are significant to him now some things we do know about Thyatira that will be helpful in understanding the passage itself we do know that Thyatira lay at the mouth of a long valley and some of the most important roads in the ancient world went right straight through that valley so had to pass through Thyatira to get to Pergamum for example the capital of Asia Minor one had to go through Thyatira so In spite of Pliny's assessment, it would have been a town of commerce. It was, we know, a center of the wool trade and the dyeing industry. We also know that this was the city of Lydia. The same Lydia that's mentioned in Acts, I'm sorry, yeah, Acts chapter 16, Lydia of Philippi. Acts 16, verse 4, who was a seller of purple, if you'll recall. She's from Thyatira. Purple dye was extremely expensive, and it's always been assumed that Lydia, who was from Thyatira, was somewhat wealthy. We know also this. Thyatira had more trade guilds than any other city in Asia Minor. So it was a city of commerce. As to the religious activity, something that's been important in the last couple of churches that we've studied, it did have temples to both Apollo and Artemis but they weren't especially famous. And although emperor worship was practiced, as it was in all the other cities of Asia Minor, it was not especially important in Thyatira as it was in some of the other cities. However, there were certain things that marked this religious community that are very important to our study of this church and Jesus' message to this church. The religious culture there was marked by immoral behavior and drunkenness. Now that's so much that's so foreign to our ears today that how a religious culture or a religious worship service could be marked by immorality or fornication and drunkenness. It's it's almost difficult for us to get our minds around. But in the ancient world that was the world of the Greeks, especially the Greeks, sometimes the Romans as well that they had, as, as part of initiation, rights into their religions. There would be fornication and drunkenness. It was part of how they became related to God, as odd as that seems. But then we look at a passage like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and we see Paul say, Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation or a waste of time, but rather be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. You see, in that city, Ephesus was one of those cities where immorality and drunkenness, especially drunkenness, marked their worship. So what Paul is telling them there is something the same thing Jesus is going to be telling them here. Don't borrow the the methods of the world in attempting to worship God. You need to do it God's way. And when you start compromising with the world, especially the religion of the world in order to get to God. God is not going to appreciate that, and he's going to come down hard in condemnation upon it. So what we're going to see happening here is they were borrowing from the religious culture, the pagan, if I could say the pagan religious culture of Thyatira, and then they were bringing it into the church, and God says no. I would like to say that is something that's totally foreign to our church context today, but it's not. Now, we may not be bringing immorality, by immorality, it's the text is usually referring to some sort of sexual immorality. We may, not be, may, we may not be bringing immorality into the church. We may not be bringing drunkenness into the church. But I guarantee it, we're bringing the world into the church today. We're borrowing the world's methods, pastors that become CEOs and not pastoral. We have decided on the world's view of success. And the best churches are the ones that have the biggest buildings and have the largest congregations. Listen, just because a church has 15,000 people to it doesn't mean it's an especially spiritual church. At the same time, just because a church has 15 people in it doesn't mean it's an especially spiritual church. The size of a church has nothing to do with its spirituality, but that's not what the world tells us. The world tells us that we need to use these metrics, these ways of measuring success in a ministry, but they're the world's ways of measuring success, not God's ways. God's ways are a little bit more difficult to measure, seeing as how he's the only one that can really measure. We have to leave it to him. So this is going to be the biggest thing about this church. They're compromising with the world. So we'll also see that in spite of the fact that they're compromising with the world, the threat's coming from inside. These are not external consultants that are coming trying to push their religion upon this church at Thyatira. This problem is coming from inside the church at Thyatira. They're going outside to the world and then bringing those methods back in. And we'll see this woman who is doing it, this woman called Jezebel. Their primary problem was that they tolerated apostasy. And more specifically, an apostasy that was led by one of their own, this woman who is called Jezebel in this letter. The issue of compromise with the world has challenged believers in this city. Would they go along to get along? Would they go along to make money? And that's why I mentioned the trade guilds, and that's why I mentioned Lydia probably being a very wealthy person. While Thyatira was insignificant in some ways, it was not insignificant when it came to commerce. And with the Christians in Thyatira, go along to get along to make money. It looks like some of them were. The description of Christ here, as we've seen in every one of the churches, comes from the first chapter. It's threefold and is particularly relevant to the church in Thyatira, as all of them have been to the individual churches. Son of God speaks to his deity and authority. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire The eyes like a flame of fire were descriptive of penetrating insight into the deeds and the thoughts of others, and feet like burnished bronze. This emphasizes purity in the ancient world and the fact that Jesus' purpose was to purge impurity from the church. Jesus doesn't play the game of impurity in individuals, and he doesn't play it in the church either. Once again, I'm not in any way implying sexual immorality and drunkenness are a problem in the Christian church in the 21st century in America today. That's not what I'm implying. But the same thing can be happening when we're bringing the world's standards into the church, and it's just as immoral, actually. Now, verse 19, I know your deeds. This is going to come up twice here in this passage, once in a positive way and once in a negative way. The word deeds is, or works is morally neutral. The the context has to determine whether they're good deeds or whether they're bad deeds, good works, or bad deeds, or bad works. In verse 19, these are good works. I know your good works, he tells them. I know your deeds. And he follows up with what are some of their deeds. We wouldn't think love was a deed sometimes, would we? But, but love is the greatest deed. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. This is a powerful statement because Jesus is complimenting them, not on their knowledge. We went through that when we we saw the church at Ephesus. They had great knowledge, but they weren't doing anything with it. These people apparently had some knowledge, and they were doing something with it, at least a segment of this church was, ever since the Reformation times probably as early as Martin Luther's nailing the 95 theses of the door of the church at Wittenberg, but certainly by the 1560s in Geneva, work became a dirty four-letter word in Christianity. There was so much emphasis on salvation being by grace through faith alone apart from works. There was so much emphasis by the reformers in wanting to make a distinction between themselves and the church at Rome, between Luther and the Pope, or between calvin and the pope they wanted nothing to do with works and people overreacted a bit to that and somehow over the course of protestant history even into evangelical protestantism we've come up with the idea that works are somehow bad or that should be avoided heaven forbid that's why we went through the passage last week that word paul says salvation is by grace through faith alone in christ well that's true it's apart from works, so that no one should boast And then in the very next verse, which is the end of the paragraph in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we were created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. So our good works demonstrate what we've learned. James says it. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Don't be afraid to do good works. It's okay. Now, you need to watch your motivation for doing such works. And Jesus himself gives us the right motivation in this passage here. The right motivation is love. That's the ultimate motivation for doing something good for God. Love for God first. Why do you do something nice for the person down the street or your neighbor or somebody you don't even know? Because you love God first. And second, because you love the person. Why? Ultimately, because God loves them. If we would ever get that point through our our heads, I think the whole Christian life, the whole Christian experience would flow much more easily. If I would realize that it shouldn't be a burden upon me to love you because God loves you, then I'd be a whole lot better off. But if I think myself just a little better than you, or you think yourself just a little better than me, or you think in your own soul because we're very egocentric in our own souls we think about ourselves as some of it's kind of normal to think of ourselves but it's in many ways in many ways it's almost as if it's just me and god and we're the only person the only two people in the universe he would have died for me even if that was the case so i have this i have this unique relationship with him but then i need to realize he's got that same unique relationship with everybody else especially those who are believers in the lord jesus if I realize he loves you just as much as he loves me, no more, no less, but he loves you just as much, it's going to be a little more difficult for me to become angry with you. Somebody one time in this very room right here expressed extreme anger with one of my kids, and it, I, I explored it. I was objective, and I objectively looked into it, and I think the lady was just having a really bad day. And so I told her, after looking into it, I told her that's probably not the best thing to do. Uh, You've got to be careful expressing how you're mad at someone that someone else really loves. I mean, you can do it, but you better do it in a really tactful way. And if that's true with me as a human being, in my own children, or you, somebody came in here and said, I don't like that so-and-so goes to your church, he's a such-and-such, and he's a... I would probably say, you know what, that guy's a friend of mine. You might want to just keep that to yourself. Well, if that's true with me, what do you think it is with God? Because He loves the person perfectly. And you come in and you just malign in that person, you just hate that person, you want to do something bad to that person, I want to take revenge upon that person. And God loves them everybody as much as He loves you. Eh, probably not the best thing. Probably not the best position to put yourself in. Now this doesn't mean that you call what somebody else does if it's wrong, it doesn't mean you call it right. It doesn't mean you say it's okay. But to hate the person is hating someone that God loves, and that's not a position you want to be in. Love's the ultimate motivator to do good works. I love God, I love the other person. So he's saying, in verse 19, extremely important passage for the positive aspect here. I, I've given you the negative already, with respect to the message statement and compromise, but he's complimenting them here. I know about your deeds, and guess what? I know that your love and your faith and your your service and your perseverance—they're increasing which means that, that your spiritual life must be in the, on the right track. He's, at least Jesus is implying that here. He knows their motivation. Now, if I was looking at your works, I may have to say it, it looks good to me. And I, I don't know what your motivation is, but not with Jesus. So I'm going to take his evaluation at face value that this means they're growing in their faith. Their deeds of later greater than the first. And then, unfortunately, we have a, a but. And this is another strong conjunction. This is the... This is the conjunction Allah, A-L-L-A. But there's a problem in this church. And we've, we see that in six of the seven churches. There's a problem. Only one of the churches, there wasn't a problem. But six of the seven have them, and this one's got a big one. Small church. more's written about this church than any of the rest of them. It's a significant problem. They were both learning and doing, at least as a group. But they're also tolerating something. They should have never tolerated. Toleration is also a concept that is context-specific. One can, and I believe most cases one should, tolerate non-moral differences in someone else. If someone likes lavender shirts and you don't particularly care for lavender shirts, um, I hope you'll tolerate that. There's no moral component to that unless I knew you didn't like lavender shirts and I wore it just to make a point. You see, now that there would be a moral component there, but there are so many non-moral things that we should tolerate. But when it comes to things that have a moral component to them, if we tolerate something that has a moral component that God says is wrong or sinful or bad or evil, pick your word and we say, I'm going to tolerate that. We're saying, what god says is wrong i'm saying is okay and boy you t- that marks our culture today and that did not come from the scriptures that came right straight from satan's playbook if he can get us to tolerate that which god does not tolerate then we're in trouble as a culture and that's what marks the united states and perhaps other countries as well we're tolerating something that we shouldn't they were tolerating something they shouldn't again we're not talking about likes and dislikes. You like sour cream. Maybe. I don't like sour cream. Well, I can tolerate the fact that you like sour cream. It's, you see, I'm trying to be so absurd you see the point. Some things have no moral component to it. Tolerate those things out of love. But when they have a moral component, when we tolerate in our churches, in our culture, that which God does not tolerate, then we're in trouble. And it would be very difficult for us to miss the unrighteous toleration that marks our culture and unfortunately in some of our, I'm going to call them, more liberal mainline churches. Now by liberal, I'm not talking about Republican or Democrat or I'm not talking about liberal politically. I'm talking about liberal with the way they look at the scriptures. But when I use the term spiritual liberalism or christian liberalism i'm talking about people that don't look at the scriptures as though they have authority that should be followed in their total in totality yes they'll pick one or two things but they'll say jesus christ is god i will agree with that but i have no problem with gay marriage or homosexuality or uh, any of the other number of things that our culture tolerates today now, we've already seen in one of the previous letters it doesn't mean we hate the person Heaven forbid. God loves that person, but God hates their deeds. Remember, he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We've studied that before. And the deeds of the Nicolaitans look remarkably similar to the deeds that that are taking place here in Thyatira that Jezebel is promoting. We just have to be careful with this concept. Don't confuse loving someone else with tolerating something in them that is immoral. We cannot celebrate immorality. Peggy Noonan, who used to write for President Bush, uh, H.W. Bush, She once said that you can tell a lot about a culture by what it celebrates. And our culture celebrates the wrong things today. And that's what was happening in Thyatira. Today our culture insists on not just toleration of the individual, but toleration of the act. And that's where we've gone wrong. That's where we better be careful. We better be very careful not to tolerate something that God calls sinful. Now, please, if I may, this is crude, but you're all adults here. There's a church that comes from Kansas. They only have about half as many people as they're in this room, and they're told, whole church, but somehow they get all the press because they go to funerals, and they'll hold up signs. sign. If it's a funeral of someone that's died of AIDS, for example, they'll hold up a sign, just quoting the sign that says, God hates fags. Kill the fags. That's not what I'm talking about here. That is sinful in and of itself. It's cruel to do something like that. It's it, There's no place for that in Christianity. You can refuse to tolerate the sin without doing something as sinful as that. I hope you see the point. By the way, we all have problems. We all have sin. And when we start picking out the sins of others and ignoring our own, I can assure you you're not advancing in your spiritual life. When we can look at our own sin and say, thank you, Father, for having mercy upon me. Thank you for having mercy upon me, a sinner. Please have mercy upon my friend, too. Help them see what they're doing. Then that's when we might be growing a bit more. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols the word afiemi is the word that's translated tolerate here it's a word that's rich in meaning in the greek language it can mean to forgive to permit to free to neglect or as the new american standard translates it to tolerate probably best understood to tolerate here in this context but i want you to see the richness of the of the idea In other words, if we're tolerating that which we shouldn't tolerate, we're forgiving that which God doesn't forgive, unless there's some sort of confession of it. They're tolerating, they were forgiving, they were looking the other way at that which God does not, and Jesus comes down upon the one, comes down hard upon the one that's leading this rebellion. This woman is called Jezebel, and whether or not her name was actually Jezebel, most New Testament scholars doubt that but they think, and I do too, that her name is most likely symbolic of the behavior that she's engaged in and her leading others astray, but it certainly was intended to remind us of the Old Testament, Jezebel. If you recall back in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 16, Jezebel is um, the daughter of the king of Sidon. She became the wife of Ahab, who was a king of northern Israel, she exerted strong influence over the religious life of Israel, the northern kingdom, establishing the worship of Baal, or Baal, if you prefer. So strong was her influence that the scriptures attribute the apostasy of Ahab, her husband, directly to his wife. If I can't help but think of back in, in Genesis chapter 3, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. This happened right after they got married. I don't know if Ahab was fooled or not, but right after they got married, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, Ahab began following the practices of Baal worship and built a house of worship and an altar for Baal in Samaria, setting aside a grove that they could worship in in Asherah. That's in verse 33 of chapter 16. A campaign was conducted then to get rid of all the prophets of God. You remember that in 1 Kings chapter 18. And Jezebel herself organized a great number of prophets to do so. She fed them, she housed them, she paid them. And to meet this challenge, God didn't send 700 of his own prophets. He just sent one, this man named Elijah. And Elijah's the one that prophesied a drought that would last for three years. And then you remember the great battle on Mount Carmel. I've had the opportunity, as some of you have, to to stand at the very place where this great battle took, took, took effect. And it's, it's, and it's an interesting spot. It's a beautiful spot. But, of course, God, working through one man, ended up defeating the prophets of Baal, and it was a great spiritual victory for Elijah. But as happens sometimes, we're most vulnerable to defeat. Right after great spiritual victories, Jezebel says after he's, after 700 of her prophets are killed, Jezebel says, You're a dead man. And so Elijah runs and and you remember the account of that. The, uh, but the point is that Jezebel was a bad, bad person, very evil woman. The Jezebel and Thyatira, in similar fashion, led at least some of the Christians there to fall into immoral behavior, and then after graciously being given the time by God to repent, she did not want to repent, the text says. You know why people don't repent most of the time? They don't want to. That's just it. You know why we continue in this bad behavior that we know we shouldn't be doing? That may not be these things, but all of us have something, something in the back of our soul where we know we need to clean that up, but we kind of like it. Or at least we think we do. We think it's going to make us happy. In our spirit, we know it's not, but in our flesh, we think, maybe, maybe I know better than God does what's going to make me happy, so I'm going to do this thing he doesn't want me to do. Well, Jezebel was the same way, and so God had given her time to repent, but she did not want to repent. Those who commit adultery with her, behold, I will cast upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery, her on a bed of sickness, those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, those who are committing adultery with her are not necessarily engaged in the act of physical adultery with her. They're engaging in the same behavior. They're committing the same sin alongside her. Verse 23 is a little chilling. I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, there's a lot of discussion about who these children are. Are these her physical children or the children of the activity? In other words the people that are going along with her generally speaking god doesn't kill the children of people in order to punish them it has happened it happened in the case of david he took the child away from david and the child of the adultery so there, there there are cases where it happened but that's not generally what happens so if something happens to your child if you have a child die it doesn't mean that you necess- it doesn't mean god is punishing you for some sin by by killing your child He's sovereign. He can do what he wants to, but that's not the norm. That's out of the norm when it happens. But what's happening here, uh, Robert Thomas proposes that these are her spiritual children who have wholeheartedly endorsed the practices. So the people that went along with her are the ones that he is going to take out. You see, she calls herself a representative of God, but she's not. I will kill her children, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts It will give to each one according to your deeds. Now, that's that's the negative use of the word deeds. Same word, but here it's definitely a negative context. You see? In the first use of the word deeds, he was complimenting them. Here it's not a compliment. Back to verse uh, 20 for just a moment. But I had this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, prophetess in the Old Testament sense and certainly the prophet in the New Testament sense the prophet in the New Testament sense was a forerunner of the gift that we call today or the office we call pastor. I do not believe there are prophets today. A prophet had a word directly from God. A prophet was a spiritual leader of the group. We have all the information from God we need right here. We don't need somebody to come up and say, I'm a prophet and I want to tell you this. I know it's not found in the Bible. I actually contradicts something that's found in the Bible, but I'm going to tell you this. Well, that person should be rejected completely. But a prophet was also a teacher. Part of what prophets did was foretell the future. Something's going to happen. But a greater part of what they did was teach God's counsel to the people. I want you to see this. This woman calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches. There's so much here, I don't want to pass by it too quickly. Again, talking about borrowing the ways of the world. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. This is a New Testament church. And in First Timothy, chapter 2, Paul specifically says, and we cannot get around it, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And this is in a church setting. And I know that this is so unpopular today that you, you almost hate to say it even in a small group like this, but this is this is God's word. Now, it's in a church setting. This doesn't mean if you're at work and your boss is a woman that you go to her and say, well, I don't think you should have authority over me. When she fires you, <laughs> don't come write me an email looking for sympathy because you had it coming to you. What Paul's talking about in, in his letters to Timothy is in a church context. Now, there's nothing that says a woman can't teach or exercise authority over another woman in a church context. and We have many very fine women Bible teachers out there today when we were in In London, we met the executive director for BSF, which is a group that does a great job, I think. And many of you in our church go to BSF from time to time and have really grown from the experience. But that's women teaching women or men teaching men. It's not women teaching men. I know this sounds so old-fashioned, but don't miss that from the context here. They should have known something was messed up right already, that this woman was the one that was teaching them that it was okay to do these deeds. This has, this has nothing to do with how skilled an expositor or an exegete a woman is in a church. It has nothing to do with it at all because that's the pragmatism that I hear sometimes. Well, they can exegete the world a lot better than he can. Why couldn't, Why shouldn't she be the teacher? I don't know why. It's just God said it. I don't, I don't know why he may. I don't know why he, well, I have an idea, but that's not my business. My business is to do it. it it's not misogynist. It's not putting women down. The women are totally equal with men. They're just different roles that the man and the woman have inside the local church. And that's that's where the train went off the tracks before she ever got her message across. Because they were listening to her. So, yeah, I know all about the women that are tremendous Bible teachers. And I, I love them. I'm, I'm appreciative of them. In verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching—in other words, the teaching of immorality and food sacrifice idols—we've studied that three times already. So I'm going to. Uh, I hope you remember it from past times. Specifically, it's not a sin, but it had to do with the attitude they had when they were when they were eating that food sacrifice idols. The rest who have not held this teaching, who have not known the so-called deep things of Satan, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast till I come, who have not known the deep things of Satan. Now, this is the It's knowledge gained by observation or experience. So what, what's he saying? You haven't, you haven't participated in these orgies, in other words. You, you don't know these things. Then in verse 26, as we close our time together tonight, we have the overcomer phrase, but this one is different. There are seven of these overcomer phrases, one to each church. This is the only one with a qualifier or a modifier. Now, we've said before, and, and I know that there are a variety of views on this, and I respect that, but the closer I look at this, there are certain things in these, can I call them the rewards, that are true of all believers. For example, will not be hurt by the second death. No believer will be hurt by the overcomer won't be hurt by the second death. No believer is going to be hurt by the second death. So, in general, the overcomer is a believer in the Lord Jesus. However, here there's a, there's a qualifier. Did you see what it was? He who overcomes, these are two participles, the, the overcomer is a participle, and he who keeps my deeds, that's also a participle, connected by this word chi. So, yes, for the one the, over, the believer and the believer who is faithful, who keeps my deeds until the end, who perseveres, to use their word in verse 19. So it looks like there are people that are doing it. That's the person that will receive what comes next. Again, great discussion in Christianity is who rules with Christ in the millennium and then who rules with Christ in eternity. Is it every believer or is it only the faithful believer? Let me answer it this way there is a sense in which every believer rules because we're in Christ and we share everything that he has. We share in his inheritance. So yes, we share in that rulership. But I want you to think about it for just a moment. The millennium begins with maybe a few thousand people. Anybody that survived the tribulation as a believer and went on into the millennium, those are the ones that populate the millennium. However, there's been billions of Christians from the beginning of the church age until now. If we all individually were ruling, if we weren't ruling through Christ, but we're all individually ruling, one millennial saint, at least at the beginning, is going to be ruled by about 25,000, 30,000 Christian believers. It's, It's probably not what it means. All of us are going to rule with Christ in the sense that we're in him, that we're part of him, and we share in his inheritance. But there's something over and above that. This blessing, certainly appears to be one for those who are faithful. So you've got the overcomer in general who's a believer and the, John says as much in First in John, who's the overcomer, but the one that believes that Jesus is the Christ, same author written about the same time. but here we see there's a modifier and he who keeps my deeds to the end. to that one, to that one I will give him authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. Now that's a reference to Christ but you're going to not only will you share with him you'll rule alongside him how that'll look I don't know because Jesus is going to be the ultimate authority perhaps it's like Jesus is the president and we're city council members you know something like that I'm not sure but this is a great honor that God is giving those who both overcome and and keep the deeds till the end as I also have received authority from my Father. Jesus received it. I'm giving some of that authority to you if you overcome and you keep my deeds until the end. Verse 28 is one that I don't want to spend a lot of time on because I just simply don't know. And I will give you the morning star. The morning star is the second half of the blessing, ruling with Christ Christ, And receiving the morning star the first is clear second is not so much some take this to be christ himself john wolver took it that way Uh, mark hitchcock takes it that way brilliant guys the wording here does seem to draw at least something of a distinction between jesus who is speaking and the gift that he's giving i'm going to give you the morning star now he could be speaking third person i'm going to give you me but it's difficult to be too dogmatic there. Jesus himself is called the morning star in, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. So I'm not saying Dr. Walver didn't have a point. I would never say he didn't have a point when it comes to the book of Revelation. But it may be better. It might be better to understand these overcom- overcomers will shine as stars in the millennium, which would have been an allusion to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. But my point is, we simply don't have enough information to be dogmatic. And this is where, as a pastor, as your pastor, I want you to be very careful. There are plenty of ministries on television, some on radio, that are totally devoted to eschatology, totally devoted to the study of revelation. And those ministries, when they get totally devoted to the study of one aspect of systematic theology, sometimes can lose a balance. And sometimes will feel Obligated to come down in a dogmatic way on something the text was never meant to be dogmatic about. So if you want to write me this week and say, I believe the Morning Star was Jesus, then I'm going to say, maybe you're right. I mean, it could be. You're you're totally, uh, perfectly entitled to that. But if you were to write me this week and say, I don't think this passage had anything to do with tolerating the world, coming into the church, then I'm going to say, you need to read it again. Because we can validate that in the passage. Compromise with and tolerance of that which God condemns will bring severe discipline to the believer on the other hand faithfulness to him increasing in your good works over the period of your life because you love God and because you love his people that brings great reward Heavenly Father we thank you so much for this severe warning for in our culture today we know that we have brought the world into the church in many ways, different ways than what they did in Thyatira, to be sure, or Corinth or Ephesus, but we have brought it in. And help us to have eyes that see and to tolerate only that which you tolerate, only to tolerate that which is non-moral, and never to tolerate that which is sinful. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.